to How Does the Social Work, the podcast for and about social workers. So this year is being brought to you from the Division of Social Work at Brunel University in collaboration with the Ginger Giraffe Cooperative. My name is Dan Vale and I'm from the Ginger Giraffe Cooperative. And our guest today is Davis Kemer, who's a senior social worker in Surrey County Council. And Davis is the author of our text of the week, which is um, a magnificent 168 pages, which we've all looked through. Um, and the title is Assessing Culturally Informed Parenting in Social Work. Welcome, Davis. Thank you, thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. And can I ask our two, two students who are joining us from the Brunel University Social Work uh, Department to introduce themselves and say a little bit about themselves. Ruth, would you like to go first? Yes, uh, hi everyone. My name is Ruth. I am a student at Brunel University. My journey in Brunel started from 2018. I had interest in coming in Brunel, but um, I never made it and I started working as a prison officer. I do have a fair share of background in social care. So my passion is for social care. Um, I picked your book, Davis, because it, I, I, wow, I, you know, I used to think about culture, but reading your book has made me understand culture in so many different ways. The problems that are involved in culture, the societal issues, you know, parenting, the people, the people, what people experience, the oppression you know, the, the, the diversity in it, everything that's going on in the world. I did not understand it in terms of culture, but reading your book, I really do understand the definition of culture and what it means to people and in, in social work practice. So that's why I'm very interested in, um, you know, being a part of this podcast. And I'm definitely, definitely going to use your book as a tool to inform my practice. That's fantastic. That's always very nice to hear. <laughs> Thank you. And we also have Shamila. Hi, do you want to introduce yourself? Good afternoon. My name is Shamila, and I'm a student of MSc Social Work first year at Brunel University. Um, in the past, I did some voluntary work as a social worker, as a communication officer in social work uh, field. Um, your book is one of the... Um, interesting it's it's it is on very interesting topic and because we belong to the same background it really fascinated me and while reading this book somehow i could relate to a lot of things so it was an interesting read for me as well fantastic that's that yeah that's the most reassuring thing that you can hear as an author of anything i suppose is that it has it has uh, achieved some of what you set out to achieve thank you Thank you, Bob. Great. Well, let's dive straight in. So Ruth, I think, has the first question for you, Davis. Sure. Go on. Yes, my first question is, as uh, from your rich experience in writing um, this amazing book, um, can you tell me how important it is to presently combine historical theory and social models in assessments and intervention? All right. Uh, <laughs> historical theories and social models. I think having both of them together is, is basically the core of the practice that we do overall. 
because in essence, uh, your podcast is actually the, appropriately titled to the social in social work. And the idea of having the social models is, is that they combine how people interact in any in community. So yeah. the, the, using them in social work, the beauty of it is that you see how the different areas that uh, families enact uh, as they engage with things like the, the, the culture around them, with things like uh, the health needs of the children that they're looking after, with things like the uh, employment law. So it's, it's a whole combination of a rounded way of looking at social practice. The historical models in themselves give you a starting point to see how the journey for, of social work has been. So when you use them together, what you have is a rounded picture of where we've come from, including, for example, how terms have evolved, how yeah. social constructions have, have evolved over the years, and what, what was uh, perhaps acceptable some years back is no longer acceptable. In, in terms of my book, for example, there was a time where you could not use the term black and minority ethnic. So it's now evolved and it's become a combination of black, minority, and a Asian, but that again is still evolving as we go through. Even ideas such as what is good enough parenting, those have also evolved. So having an, an eye on all of, on both of them is essential for social work because then you move with the time, so to speak. Yes, thank you. And Shamela, you wanted to ask something. Yes, uh, I wanted to ask what led you into social work in the first place and what actually made you interested in this particular topic? Ah, it's a very good question. Uh, I, I like sometimes to think of myself as an accidental social worker, uh, by which I mean really, <laughs> mean really that when I came into social work, I approached social work as an administrative assistant, and I became interested in the whole idea of helping people achieve their prepared uh, outcomes. So for me, the interest in social work started from being in the team and watching how difficult it was for people to think around the issues surrounding families. So I thought my, my, my first undergraduate was uh, in a business degree. So I thought actually there, there are ways to, for lack of a better way to express it, to look at what is in our hands. So even to help the families to look at what do they have in their hand and to sort of find solutions to how do we use however little it is, how do we use that to achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve? So that was the interest. The topic that I then went into, which was parenting that became my focus, was because I was in a children's services team, uh, a child protection one at that. So wherever we were in those situations, a lot of my colleagues were struggling with how do they actually assess parenting within those communities. Uh, and that's where my interest sparked. So back in uh, 2006, so going back quite a long time. So it started there and then I continued it all the way. Uh, and uh, I, I, even after I finished my first uh, social work qualification, I thought actually, I, I don't think I've got all the answers and I wanted to go back and explore it as a research topic. Uh, hence, that's what led me then to a PhD in uh, uh, social work. And your PhD was, was it particularly looking at this or where, where did you start? Uh, yes, uh, that, that's, yes, it was this because interestingly, that that interest in parenting and assessing parenting started 
while I was still uh, uh, a social work assistant. I then went to, uh, interestingly, came to Brunei where, where I did my undergraduate in social work. And my topic again was around cultural informed practice. So the interest of going into social work qualification was to sort of say there must be a thread that we can thread through and, and figure out what's the best way we can assess parents across the board. And the context, I suppose, it might help you to, to know this, but the context of where all of my interest was, so the back then, about 2006, there were, it was topical to sort of look at uh, the disproportionality of, of Black minority and ethnic children in, in welfare statistics. So that interest pushed me into social work qualification. When I got into the qualification, the undergraduate, I felt like I, I'd completed the first qualification, but I didn't have the answers. Uh, and I was still interested in that topic. So I went off to uh, York University where I then looked at parenting and narrowed it down a little bit with, with the whole idea that I somehow I'd come out to the end of the research with a the golden answer to every all, all the problems to do with parenting assessments uh yeah so yeah that's the background and that's the context and tell us a bit about this disproportionality so you found in your research something yeah. i guess a lot of practitioners have, have, have suspected for a while mm. that if you are a, a parent from a same background you're much more likely to have contact with the social care yeah. you are thinking about your child uh, yes, uh, it was. I think you're right. It has been, that has been something that people, uh, professionals, uh, academics have grappled with for a while, this disproportionality. So when I started out, my thought was, okay, there, there were a lot of views about what causes that disproportionality. And there were points, there were people who advanced the view that or it is to do with poverty. Other people, you know, it had to do with education. But what was clear when I started out was that a lot of the data didn't cohere. It's not a topic that was greatly covered overall. So a lot of the data that was available didn't quite cohere. You couldn't, for example, look at the north of England and the south of England and sort of draw some uh, transferable conclusions about it. So for me, the, 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 the thread that seemed to string through all of it was the influence that uh, culture has on shaping ideas across the different areas that uh, the literature was talking about. So for example, how culture influences perspectives about education, perspective about health, perspectives about finances uh, and family, including some of the small details uh, such, as, such as, for example, gender roles and, uh, and the division within gender roles within families. So as I, as I got into the research itself, what became quite clear was that while all those other factors are important and shouldn't be discarded, I think the, to, to look at them outside of the context of culture is you would risk misinterpreting and misunderstanding why parents socialize children in the way that they do. So that disproportionality for me, the, the story then became about actually it's disproportionate because there's no confidence in how we should assess parents or families that are, are coming from certain backgrounds. And once you build that confidence, the hope is that you understand, therefore, the, 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 what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and in the process, you have more accurate assessments of whether children are safe or not. So the disproportionality is about 
getting it right in terms of whether children are safe or not, as opposed to taking a more uh, defensible approach, uh, which can sometimes be oppressive in its nature. And so what you found was that there's a pattern in social work practice where social workers uh, draw a different approach to the risk to the safety of the child in some families rather than others, all things taken into consideration. So while there may be some, some of those intrinsic factors at play, there's clearly a challenge for social workers in terms of their awareness of, their, of the own prejudices that they bring to practice. Because obviously our students have been told in, in the course that critical reflection is key to practice. And yet it seems to be from, from your research that you found that there's a little bit of a gap there. Uh, yes, uh, there is. You're, you're right. Uh, there is a, a little bit of a gap. And that's not, I suppose, some of the challenges in terms of what I could look at and reflect or, uh, uh, and uh, assess was that on the one hand, you had, and which is in, in some ways counterintuitive when you're talking about social work as a profession, on the one hand, you had social workers who knew the anti-oppressive practice uh, position that the profession requires them to have but also in some ways being somewhat oblivious of their on the of the influences of their own cultures and backgrounds but it, it, it then gets slightly more complicated because they operate assessments within the context of, of uh, agency cultures uh, and what the agency is also trying to achieve so what you then have is is, is a mismatch so to speak with the professionals approaching and looking at parenting with one lens so to say one lens that fits all and parents approaching the task of parenting of socializing children with a whole variety of different ways of doing it so in some ways you you almost need a combination of the social workers own initiative in terms of trying to understand culture but also the combined effort of the agency they're working for as well as, I suppose, the, the, the academic uh, institutions in preparing social workers and giving them that confidence in being able to interpret different permutations of uh, parenting. So in, in a way, it is about also developing that confidence in being able to interpret different versions of culture and cultural parenting. So does that mean that you, that you think that it's possible that you might have social work departments which um, are perhaps majority black and minority ethnic practitioners, but who are possibly um, replicating some of the potentially oppressive practice that comes from within the institution that, that essentially has been managed in over a period of time. Uh, yes, uh, yes, in, in some ways that, that that is the case because in, in many ways, but it's not just that though. Because what you have is, yes, you have to operate within a certain expectation. Because as as, uh, as we try to standardize practice across the country, there is still a, a risk that you overmanage what is what is then being delivered. And the problem with that is that it it's delivered with a with a certain mindset and a certain view, and that view might not necessarily encompass the variety that there is. So. You then need, in, in a very tight uh, 
and a very tight deadline of, of, of uh, delivering work, you then need confidence in being able to go beyond what the script says to be able to understand what is going on for, for, for a family, so to speak. Uh, uh, but to do that out, outside of the agency can be complicated for social workers. So yes, in many ways, there is that aspect that uh, social work is being delivered within certain structures and those structures can shape how oppressive, so to speak, the social workers approach the, the, their task. And that's not to say that there is no good practice within social work or that, the, that all social work uh, assessment and, and approaches to working with families are oppressive or limiting. But what was interesting, for example, was that for many of, of, of the parents that I talked to, although they, they, a lot of them started to accept what the social workers were, were saying, they also felt that the approach that social workers took stimulated their opportunities for keeping the children in because they didn't feel that they could articulate what they wanted to say without risking having negative interpretations of, of, of what they were trying to do. So yes, it, it, it does get slightly complex in, in trying to combine what is the difference and where, where, do you, where do you draw the intersection in which all of those other factors interact. And so for me, it was juxtaposing where social workers approach the assessment from, i.e., from a clear structure and it has to be informed by the law, but also the law being informed by uh, uh, theories that might be limiting in terms of looking at a wider spectrum of, of, of parenting. Yes, because you're very, you're very keen on the idea that we look at strengths and competencies and not just deficits and risks. And there seemed to be quite a lot of concern coming out of your research that um, the culturally diverse parenting strengths were partly for linguistic and cultural reasons, but just not recognized. And also that, and that perhaps the parents were, as you say, unable to actually, or, or had some barriers to communicating what some of those things were for fear of stigma. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a very good observation because I, the, the the driver, so to speak, to, to looking at how parents, for example, saw assessments and how social workers saw assessment was that there was, there was this mismatch of expectations. So you, you, you would have social workers who approach the whole assessment process with, for lack of a better way to express it, with tick boxes to sort of say, all right, what are we looking at culture, for example, if we're looking at the culture, and that was limited to only identifying identity. So they're from a certain country, uh, speak this language, but not delving much deeper than that. For example, to look at what does the insistence on, on, on uh, artifacts such as dress code, what is that all about? Uh, or on, on uh, values such as respect, what is that all about? And can we achieve this a different way? So what you then tended to have is that when social when when parents or families got uh, comments such as this is not how we do it in this country, they didn't feel able to be able to challenge that view and to sort of say well, this is what I want to do. Uh, and for the from the social workers' point of view, there was all, also that worry that some of the things that parents were saying or families were saying were some sort of smoke screen to hide issues that would be uh, detrimental to children's welfare. 
so you have two groups of, of, of participants in my case approaching this, this central view from different parts. So with one thinking, oh, well, it won't matter what I say, they already have a view. And the other, and the professionals feeling that, all right, we, we, we need to make sure that we get this, that we are assessing this family and that they are, the children in the family are safe. And we have to do it within certain parameters of the law. Yes, that's, that's a really interesting, because <laughs> what you're getting then, I guess, is um, an, an insider-outsider sort of binary where yeah. the outsider looks at the insider. And I guess this is true with the police uh, or people, the, the benefit system, any, any gatekeeping organization that, that carries threat, you won't get the yeah. service or we will put you in prison or we will take away your children. Yeah. Um, holding the, the, the narrative um, and that can leave the outsider, A, not sure how to navigate the system and B, fearful of disclosing certain things in case they are punished. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's spot on. I can, so, I, yeah. I can quote here. There is a, still that stigma among a people from my background. If they will uh, seek help in terms of psychologically, especially when the mother goes through all the birth, uh, birthing and all that, and normally they get into that um, uh, post-birth uh, depression. Uh, mm -hmm. They feel like if they report it and they seek the help, they, the child will be taken away from them. So in that sort of uh, situation, what what kind of me, uh, support is out there for them? Or do you think the social worker comfort them in a way where they can feel more open to speak to them? Uh, the, I think that they are, interestingly, lots of uh, third sector organizations, I'd call them. So the, the people that they would feel confident about, uh, I didn't find very many, but when I was doing my research, there was one in, in, in the Southall area of London called the Blacks, uh, Southall Black Sisters. They've been around for quite a while, for example. So it is those, those, those organizations, what they do is sort of, uh, they're a good bridge between the professionals. So for, between, the gatekeeping organizations and the communities that they want to support because people can feel confident articulating what they want to say within in their own language in the context of their culture and usually those organizations will have somebody professional enough to be able to say all right this is why because the concerns are there so you have that bridge within the third sector organizations to be able to bridge it but you're not going to get that for example uh, when i did my research there was a uh, and I did it across three sites uh, in terms of where I recruited people, participants from. So you, you might get that, for example, in London will be, you'll have a group of uh, Polish, which I did interview some of us, and you would have the South of Black Sisters. But what you have is an organization that can bridge that. It, it, it is a long way away. One of the ideas I talked about is that the, the police, for example, do. Uh, policing in the community sort of events where they come out to uh, cultural events such as Diwali, for example, or, or Eid, and they'll set up a stall where they talk about what they do. Social probably could pick up something like that, but in, in the absence of something like that, it would be trying to uh, partner with the third sector organization so that people can feel free and confident talking to 
people who feel they feel will understand them and then having somebody professional expressing that and there are lots of, of, of small community groups that help people in that way again it's not it's it's a rather bland instrument because again in some of the communities the stigma is such that they're not prepared to share those their backgrounds with people from their own community for fear of that stigma expanding further than that i mean just take everywhere in the world what support is available for parents to be the best parents they can be because if you think about how important parenting is how important child development is to the world yeah then it strikes me that it's interesting then to look at what support is available now generally speaking support for things like how you navigate through life will either come from the state yeah in you know say communist countries or uh, other other nations um from religion from family or from maybe let's call it the market including the third sector but that's a weak the last one the market in the third sector can be great but it's quite kind of weak they're not going to come to you and make you engage yeah. Um, yeah. education obviously is provided by the state so we don't really educate our children about how to be parents that i can see and i'm a parent and i was educated in this country so that then leaves religion which in many countries i think does provide a fabulous kind of set of mores and norms about parenting but certainly when you look at the united kingdom firstly there are lots of different religions and secondly more than half of the people don't identify as being particularly religious so it's a weak it's a weak or not institutionalized factor in this country we don't have although the you know the church of england is supposed to be the, the nation's institutional religion i don't think it is effectively that for for more than kind of 10 percent of people um and then of course family and again in this country the norm is that 50% of people get divorced and there's a hugely wide, a huge range of family styles uh, you know and cultures in this country so in some other countries family you know so let's say let's take a, a random example a south pacific island family would be a hugely it would be the driver of almost all cultural norms yeah um, and has been for centuries but in a place like london or the united kingdom none of those forces are are a majority force none of those forces so we behave as if there's yeah there are laws around parenting or at least around child protection but there's there's no way actually of scaffolding support to people for parenting i mean you get some stuff in hospital about how to to deal with pregnancy and delivery <laughs> but what after that <laughs> yes uh, yeah I, 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 I agree with you, yes, and, and the, the strength of my argument and what my, what my argument is centered on is that when you, you're right, and I, I have to agree with you across the board, when you're looking at the, the uh, you're looking at globally, there are lots of different permutations of how people do parenting and how do people do family. And, and how you deliver that is going to, in many ways, differ very, very widely. And that's, that in itself is the challenge that social workers in England have, because when, once people are in England and once you're doing parenting assessment in England, you're looking at a melting pot of all sorts of different permutations. What I argue is that, uh, on the other hand, if you start to look at the central issue, for example, of disproportionality, you inevitably have to look at what is the string. And so for me to start to, to, to delve into what is that string, that the, 
that strengthened me was culture. So I thought of thought, thought, how far does culture go? And you're right, is that when you start to look at people from uh, a specific area of the world, in many ways, despite the religion and how they interpret the religion, my my argument is that the cultural perspectives that they have. So if you pick, if you pick the non-Western world, for example, and that's the focus of my book, is that you 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 will find that if you pick parts of Africa, whether that's Western Africa or within a country in Africa, they're going to parent in broadly similar ways. There are going to be variations for sure. And those variations are going to be influenced by a whole range of issues. So when we look at the literature and what the literature says, you're going to naturally have the impact of education. For me, education is one of those ones that I think actually is a very, very good way to start to shape ideas about what is the right way to parent and to, for that to start to, to trickle down into the culture bit. But the, 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 the strength for me that culture has is that it shapes all sorts of things across, not just in parenting, and that's the subtlety of it, is that there is the aspects that are very overt, and you know that, okay, this they parent in such a way because uh, that's just how that culture operates. But they're also, it also becomes almost uh, subconscious that there's some aspects of what certain cultures do that they don't even, it's become second nature. The ones that I can, uh, I can, uh, that was particularly interesting that I can look at is, is uh, aspects that are associated with values to the extent that parents sometimes will do absolutely anything to keep those values because they associate those values with their very identity. So you then have what you have, the influence that culture has that even when you do the education bit, even when you do uh, what the hospital might say, is that the, the big aspects of socialization, how do you, at what point, for example, which is an interesting one, at what point is a child independent and safe enough to cook? That's gonna vary across. So, uh, collective, co collectivist cultures might think of it as uh, actually any time from uh, any age from about eight, nine will be okay. When you're in a westernized culture, uh, that is dangerous because the child could set the, the house on fire. And, and I think is when you're starting to look at how culture impacts the other factors. And again, the, the debate can go on and on because when you look at education and how it impacts the other factors, my argument is that actually when you have, once you nail the culture aspect first, but once you nail it, you're able to understand everything else within the context of culture because even aspects like we just come out of the pandemic and, and it's interesting, uh, some of the discussions around who is taking the vaccine and who is not and how they, they, they dwell back, they, they sort of central back to, to culture and how perspectives about culture will then determine how people receive even things like the vaccine. Uh, and again, when you're looking at it in terms of vaccinating children across the board, COVID aside, Again, it will be those perspectives that will shape whether a parent allows their child to have it or not. Uh, and then that, and that complicates assessments all through because how, you, how do you move them? Because again, you're right, the support has got to be, how do you educate them to sort of have a different perspective? Do you do that in school? Do you do that in families? Uh, at what point do you do it? But I, I think the key thing is that synthesizing has got to be on the understanding that culture is the main thing that we need to change.
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shamila, you had another question. Yeah. Do you think the problem is with the Western neoliberal worldview towards developing peace? And how do you think different models of social work use different ideas in other countries? Uh, I think that's it's a good question, a rather complex one to answer, or perhaps I should say I don't quite know the exact answer to that. But I, I, I think it's not necessarily complicated because at some point you have to understand an issue and you have to start somewhere. What makes contribution to knowledge as we grow is that we understand a base somewhere and then we would build on it. So when, you, when we talk about, for example, aspects such as children's development and what are the areas to, to prioritize. So we will have in the starting point, the framework for assessment of children in need. So that gives you seven aspects across which to assess. But determining again, which one should have the greatest importance or the greatest, who should weigh the more is, is far more complex than that. And I think how you move on to be able to, to incorporate, the, because I, I find that triangle, the assessment triangle, as we call it in social work, I find it to be quite exhaustive, really. Uh, the issue is how you interpret it. The challenge of interpreting parenting approaches from a very westernized view is that it limits the very wide variety of approaches to parenting that they are. And the danger is, that you can set it as the benchmark for good parenting. And in the process, you then, the practice then becomes, for lack of a better way to express it, very oppressive. So I think the way you move past it is you recognize that there are different permutations of parenting and there are different ways of, of to be delivered, for parenting to be delivered in. And therefore, the best way would be a sort of intersection, and I don't quite know what that is. So, uh, some have suggested that the best way would be to find some sort of a linkage scale, if you like, that we, that we can weigh these different uh, ideas and sort of give scores and determine what is safe and what is not safe within parenting. But I think the challenge is that you, you either take the idea that collective, collectivist cultures are going to look at things rather differently, and that, that in, in itself strikes a very huge difference across the board. But if we stay with what is it that we're trying to achieve, we're trying to achieve safe children remaining in families safely, and we're also trying to address the issue of the disproportionality, what we then focus on is trying to reduce the number of children getting into welfare statistics needlessly. So I think it's, the, the, the answers are not straightforward, but they give us a starting point to start to, to look at how do we build on this issue to then narrow it as we go forward? So when you, when you get a, a proverb, which I've heard many times, and I don't actually know whether this proverb is, is an African proverb or an Asian proverb or a European proverb, or probably all of the mm. above. But the proverb is, it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. Now, yeah. If, and when everyone who ever hears this proverb nods their head and goes, yeah, that's so right. And especially if you're a parent and you realize how tough it can That's be true, yeah. <laughs> in an individualistic kind of nation and you wish that you had a village around you to help to raise a child. But if, if that is true, then surely you should be assessing the village as right. the kind of mutual parent rather than the individual who is the parent. No, but that's true, isn't it? Because grandparent care is really important. Yeah. 
and the other people who are in the house, maybe there's step parents or you know older siblings. There's a lot of things that go into helping to keep a child to thrive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. I agree uh, very, very strongly indeed, because I, I think that actually, uh, I sound almost as if uh, I, I'm, I'm just promoting just culture and culture, nothing else. But that's the central issue in my book. But when I look at when I look at what is it that shapes the individual family? So if you take away the individual family from the community, what is it that shapes that individual family's perspective on anything? I would argue that it is actually the village, because the village, uh, because everything that informs how that parent does things is socially constructed. So even ideas about uh, gender roles within the family, those are socially constructed. What is okay and what's not okay, socially constructed. So I would say that uh, if you look at a parent in the purest comp, uh, and the purest concept of culture, as I define it within the book, is that it, it is that village that has shaped and informed everything. So in essence, that parent, even, even when you take, for example, a, a parent who, I, I'm from U, Uganda originally, so if you take a parent who has come from Uganda and come to England and been educated, so they're, they're picked up things within England, but significantly, the, the, the aspects that are going to probably shape this greatest direction in which they, they'll socialize the children will be culturally informed. So that will be including things like what is good behavior, what is good parenting, those will be culturally constructed and they'll be in essence village constructed. So you, the, the likelihood is that when the village says that that's actually not right, uh, that is the whole community saying that. In, in the same way, you could you could say the same thing, I suppose, about England, because when we come to a point where we're saying, where the state is saying that actually you shouldn't be having these children and we should remove them, we're in essence saying that we in England do not accept that this is okay parenting. We've constructed that the narrative about what is okay and what's not. That's very interesting. I think Ruth has got uh, an interesting question. <laughs> I think I have a statement before I ask a question. <laughs> sure. You know, the children are our future. And the way social workers are assessing, you know, BAME families, I think in some way it, it, it's detrimental to the future of our children because if you assess them, you fail them, and they lose identity and going into the society, you have these children who are growing, going into the society with a lost identity. How, how are they supposed to figure themselves out in the society if they've lost, if they're lost? And this is because like, I've noticed a lot of uh, white British social workers have said it is important to acknowledge culture and ethnicity when you are assessing, but they don't say how important it is. They don't mention the principles of cultures and they use the triangle assessment as a cover-up to say, to justify that we have a guidance, we're doing things fairly proportionally, but it, for me, it doesn't give me the in-depth understanding of do you really understand these people as they are, as their identity, for their culture or is it just the paper the triangle assessment they've given you 
to help you do the assessment. For me, I just feel like it wasn't, it, it, it did not satisfy the understanding of your project. And also another social worker said, when they have so many cases, they can only, there's only so much they can do to approach a BAME family. So they do not have much time, from my understanding, they do not have much time to go into picking out the different cultural, you know, what's safe to do and what's safe to not do. They just generally assess it because they have other work to do. So kind of like touch me, what can I say? So I just think the lack of cultural knowledge does not have a robust cultural assessment. And these can leave, leave children, you know, with no identity. It can cause a danger to their future. And do you think on a macro level, do you think the polit politicians can develop a legal framework that will, th that will look more closely into culture? Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, thanks for that question. It is uh, one of the things that I found doing my research was exactly how complex, absolutely complex it is. And, I, I, and being a social worker myself, I know the challenges associated in trying to balance those different demands mm -hmm. and, and the importance of retaining uh, children's identity. Mm -hmm. I think we start off, uh, they, they, they are, and certainly these are the things that actually drove me towards the research and writing the book. When we start off, the issue that we want to actually avoid is those children who are within the welfare system needlessly. And needlessly because somebody has assessed their parents and got it wrong. And got it wrong because they didn't quite understand what that parent was trying to achieve and therefore concluded, perhaps inaccurately, that the child was not safe. Now you're right, once you start then to disintegrate that, then the risk that you have is you have a child who's in the care system whose yeah. identity is potentially going to be lost along the way and yeah. you're then going to have more disasters and that can sort of yeah. extrapolate out so that that child's child children will sort of go around the same yeah. sort of, of, of trajectory. Yeah. Again, the solutions are not, they're not obvious for lack of a better way to put it and they're yeah. not necessarily easy or straightforward. Many have argued that there is, there is a need for some sort of measure that we can apply in, in, in much the same way as we use linkage skills. So we can weigh what are the different factors and we can sort of weigh what we should do with identity. Uh, but the social workers who talk about the challenges of trying to delve into understanding every individual culture, it, it, it's just not practical. Uh, and, I, and I sympathize with that view. I think the essence of what we need to do is that, and part of what I argue in my book is that it has got to move beyond a marker of identity. So culture and assessing parenting in, in, in that context has got to move beyond the marker of identity and come into what are the families trying to achieve. And the, the, the reason for that is that in what they're trying to achieve is, is the place at which to, to propose alternative that can achieve the same thing without necessarily falling foul of the legislation that we already have. Mm -hmm. Now, whether politicians and whether, whether policymakers can sort of uh, put in place laws that stop it is, a, is, a, 
another very complicated answer to, to, uh, to the question to answer because you need a basis for informing that law. And the basis for informing that law has got to be a process of sort of looking at what is the evidence to suggest and to propose a certain direction in which we should go. And that means that uh, social work institutions, uh, academic institutions, putting in the time and effort to sort of explore. So I'm talking about research. So in essence, you, you guys are now at university. It is looking at these issues and picking the impetus to sort of build on to knowledge so that as we go forward, we're hopefully narrowing how best we can do this so that we don't have children who lose identity. Because again, that's a key issue about people's functionalities that without that identity, then lots of things fall out of place. So, yeah, my answer to your question is that I don't have the answers, <laughs> but also that, that I think that the starting, the, the, the starting step has got to be, we recognize where we are at and we start moving towards the direction of finding solutions to it. Okay. So, I mean, one of the problems I'm hearing is that there's just not enough time in a social worker's, you know, diary for them to, to spend a lot of time researching and understanding cultures that are very different from them. But on the other hand, you can't, you've got to put some effort into trying to understand the cultural difference. So just as there may be situations where a social work department does have someone on the books who comes from a particular region who can help to bridge that gap. Firstly, culture is very diverse. So just because someone, for example, comes from India doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily, I mean, India is so enormous and has mm. so many different cultures that there is going to be, you know, we, we can't broad brushstroke stereotype everyone from that region as having the mm. same approach in parenting. And we've not even mentioned, for example, class or caste or the other ways in which people yeah. are delineated, religion, for example, you know, just thinking of, of India for, for a start and, and I'm by no means an expert. But you, it almost sounds as if you're edging towards another taxonomy, another way of thinking about this, which is it's a human right for culture and belonging and identity to be a major driving of parenting, regardless of the exact specifics of what that means to a culture. And so that should be held as being a, a one of the paramount drivers to consider when you think of well, I suppose in a way it's United Nations kind of right to family life, isn't it? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You, you, you're right, Dan. That's exactly what my argument is, is that uh, if we fail to do that, we risk uh, delivering services that are, are not fit for purpose when it comes to the diversity that there, are, there is now, especially not just in England, but across the world. Every country in the world, I think, is becoming increasingly more diverse. And it cannot just be enough to say, this is how we do it in this country. There is a basis and there is a standard, but there is also the need to avoid uh, a needless institutionalization. And how, how easy have you found it to kind of get some light on this subject? Because there's certainly, I've certainly heard people say that it, the subject can sometimes be hijacked by those who, who think it's about corporal punishment and smacking. And that you know, or strictness and discipline, and yeah. all of those things, which you know they're interesting in and of themselves. But it's look, you know, reading through your book, it's a tiny proportion of the actual 
it hasn't it wasn't easy at all because again even defining the parameters of it i went through a process of sort of having uh, focus groups and then splitting and then coming all the way down to having a uh, one to one interviews and and i was mindful that i wanted to sort of keep track of the topics that came out in the focus groups where i felt people perhaps being amongst each other would be more free talking about the, the, the different issues that they wanted to put forward. But you're right. It, it, it is one of those debates which can get hijacked by all sorts of different things. And so there will be people who will say, well, yeah, you're, you're minimizing it to just the issue of corporate punishment. And then there will be those who will say that it's just being hijacked by issues of race and racism. Uh, but it's far more complex than that. And those th issues intertwined because in, in parenting practices you have some of the things that I, when I was growing up I used to hear the phrase spare the rod and, uh, and spoil the child and that was interpreted in all sorts of different ways in, in terms of what it meant but beyond spare the rod and, 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 and spoil the child the emphasis has got to be where is the strictness coming from what is what, what are you trying to achieve with that strictness uh, and I think uh, in the same way that I think that we have the, the assessment triangle, which has been, which came out of a whole lot of research that then narrowed down the, the areas of children's development to seven key areas, uh, we could have something like that. And I don't know how that would, would work out, but the starting point has got to be to recognize that, as you were saying earlier, that it has to be uh, a basis of assessment that when you go into the assessment of, of, of a parent, you don't just stop on, on the culture aspect of identifying the language they, they speak, the country they come from, uh, and stop there. You have to go because everything else that they do with that child, in my view, is hugely rooted in how they perceive the world. And how they perceive the world is, is, is largely shaped by the culture that they, they have incorporated. There'll be naturally, Evolvements of culture, because as people move from uh, country to country, they'll pick up things and they'll have some adjustments here and there. Uh, but what we want to be able to avoid is, is, is staying within the context of what we're talking about is the disproportionality. That hasn't changed. It has remained an issue uh, for many, many years, for several decades. It's been an issue that there is disproportionality. And once we start to look at what is that disproportionality about, we start to then unpick what is causing children to enter the system needlessly? And can we do anything to sort of adjust it? And I propose that one of the ways that we can do that is getting a, a better grip on how we assess uh, culturally informed parenting. Shamayla, did you have another question? Yeah, um, in terms of policy and practice, uh, what sort of support or help could be provided to BME parents to help them understand what is expected from them as a good enough parent? I don't know whether that can be achieved by policy in practice, because once you start, because policy just means setting out laws, and if you set out laws, you have, they have to be informed by something. Right? Ideally, they'll need to be informed by research. And so the, the, the drive, if you like, has got to be, let's, come, let's approach this from empirical evidence to what, what does the research say? And it, it, this is an area that is not really heavily researched. So maybe if you're talking about policies, maybe uh, putting funding around research to do with issues of parenting and issues of parenting within uh, uh, 
diverse cultures. So that might be one way uh, a policy drive to sort of go through. Uh, the other way, of course, is the institutions. Uh, the, the institutions play a key role in the sense that uh, that's where the knowledge that we have, the, the scientific knowledge that we have about anything, starts to develop from there and is pushed on. So you think it's, it's, it's interesting and in some ways a little strange, and maybe there are countries that do this differently, but to think of this, um, from the age of four or five to 16 or 18, there is a massive service that spends a lot of time with our children, and that is the education service. And these are trained professionals, and there are lots of different professionals within the education system. Do they have any interest or grip on what the parenting styles and actions are of the parents of those children? Um, that is an yeah, that is an interesting perspective. I don't know. In my research, when I was looking at how schools approach supporting children to achieve grades, it was interesting that they also looked at the, 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 the children's families to sort of inform how what they did in what they did with the children. For example, they, there was quite a, a, a number of studies around how issues such as social class, uh, parents' social class, parents' education influence, and that was seemed to be a very big driver in terms of education, influence how they, how they delivered the education and, and what results the children got out of it. I suppose one way would be if that was, re, was looked at to sort of look at, is there something about the way the parents or the children, the parents are being raised, the children are being raised in their families, is there something that needs working on? I suppose that would be one way to look at it. I sort of look at higher institutions because I think that higher institutions have the advantage of looking at, the, of shaping the minds of those who are going to be coming into making, to, to forming policies. So they are the place at which you sort of start to look at the, the research that informs what should go into the primary education, for example. How much effort should we be putting into the parenting? Should it even start at that primary level? I, I, is that the place to start? Because I think that the, the institutions at the start of the education system tend to be about academic achievements. So are you able to, to achieve a certain competence by this stage and by that stage? And I, and I think once you get to the higher institutions of learning, you are shaping ideas about how do we change or transform the world that we live in. So my focus has been there, but you're right, perhaps the, 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 the starting point has got to be much earlier than that. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Well, uh, certainly at least some it, interdisciplinary work or study or dialogue, because yeah. you do have lots of people involved in a child's life. You yeah. aren't necessarily talking to each other. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I I agree. Shamila, I beg your pardon. I, I think I had started to answer your question, but I lost a little bit. What had you wanted? What, what question had you asked? It was um, that in terms of policy and practice, is there any support that can be provided to BME parents to help them understand what is actually expected from them to be good enough parent? Yeah. I don't, what there is now tends to be what is delivered, mostly what is delivered once you start, once you have social care involved. So for many parents, that might be the first time you sort of hear something about, well, what is the expectation of what is good enough parenting? 
and I think Dan's position is the question is relevant here is that at what point should we start? Should we start having these discussions much earlier on in terms of where what should be good enough parenting? Should we should we have those debates earlier in the academic process? I don't know the answers to that, to be honest. I think there is, there is something to be achieved in combining the different professionals' approach and their insights into the, the effects of parenting on children to find some sort of balance. So I think something across uh, traditionally education, health, and social care would pot potentially would bring a health... A sort of well-being service or something. Yeah, a sort of well-being service. Because unfortunately, I suppose while, while you're uh, in the Western cultures or in the Westernized world, is the first time you might hear ideas about what good enough parenting is, is, is when you get it wrong. Uh, and somebody comes and wags their finger and says, well, you know, you've been naughty. Sure. Whereas, of course, of course, if you lived on, on this small island that I'm imagining, which is just <laughs> essentially a village, then the well-being service is the village or the elders of the village and the tradition and customs. And we all have to deal with living in an advanced industrialised society. Ruth, did you have a, a final question for David? Um, yes, I've, I've kind of like formed this one. <laughs> in terms of, uh, uh, how could I say, children's development, children's development in, uh, let's say, in Africa or Asia will, could be more, um, can I say, advanced? Or could be more, um, I don't know, could be more, how can I say? They may have responsibilities earlier than children would in the Europe because in Europe, it probably can be, you know, it could be perceived as too much inappropriate, too much responsibility or autonomy given to a child. So when social workers are uh, assessing, again, a family of the BAME community, um, and they have lack of, lack of knowledge to understand how parents promote development 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 stages in, in Africa or Asia compared to development stages here in Europe. If they don't have that knowledge, who guides them? Where do they go for help to get information on you know, proportional assessment? Do line managers have cultural awareness? Can line managers guide them to what's right or what's not right? Yeah, it, it, it is a complex, complex area. You're right, and it's a very good question. Is that how it has worked? How it has worked in wherever I have worked, we've sort of looked around the team and sort of seen who comes from that area, who that part of the world. How do they do it in yeah. that part? Of the world? And you sort of yeah. consult each other and, and find out. Or yes. the alternative is that you, you do a Google search and sort of find out is this okay? Because a parent will say to you this is perfectly fine where I come from and there shouldn't be any problem. But again, once you start to do, and things have changed, is the, the, the challenge that we always have with, with assessing culture is that it evolves. Some years back, you know, it's now, I think, globally illegal to be, to, to have female circumcisions. There's still some tribes and countries, in, in, in countries, there's some tribes who still do it. The challenge, yes, you have your colleagues to look at and to talk about and to sort of exchange ideas and you have the managers to sort of bounce off ideas and what is proportional and what is not and uh, whilst you're also doing that you also have the challenges of turning around court evidence for example 
within a specific period of time and not much time to devote towards trying to uncover and unpick what, what is going on for this family. So the, answer, the focus can easily be about the presented issues, i.e. Uh, mother X slapped the child or uh, mother B left the child unsupervised and the child's only eight years old. And, and, and the context that you've given is right. I would say that the difference, the, the, the issue about the, the stages of development are just difference, difference in opinion, in, not opinion, difference in perspectives of how or when a child should be ready. Some mm -hmm. cultures would feel that, you know, a child at, at, at eight, nine years old is responsible enough to look after their five-year-old sibling. We wouldn't accept that as okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so if that parent is parenting here and decides to leave uh, their nine-year-old child to look after two of their siblings while they go to work, uh, we would have something to say about that. Mm -hmm. And for that parent, it might be very, very difficult to understand what the concerns are in which mm. case, they, you know, they, they, like, they lack insight. And, and they, from their position, we lack insight into what children are capable of. Mm -hmm. So it's just striking that balance because for that parent, trying to say to them that uh, what they did was dangerous, when they're looking at it from the perspective of, actually, this is the age at which this child should be able to do these things, is where the mismatch is. So that mismatch then means that, all right, if they can't, if that parent cannot come to the acceptance of what, professionals are saying is okay then they can't safely look after the child so the, the real debate is is that child really not safe That's surely in, in, in i mean you could imagine the scenario where yeah. perhaps they've been in a refugee camp and that was a that that behavior and that way of parenting was survival and now they're here and actually probably with some education and support they, they could be helped to understand that survival is different here and will require different behaviours. Um, so it's not that they have a set, a set attitude towards what's necessary. It's an adaptive attitude, and we just need to help them to adapt. Yes. Yeah, I agree absolutely, because there, there is, but that's the complexity of, of culture, because it is, you have to approach it from the understanding that they're not necessarily lacking insight, but their insight might be different. And therefore, how you move them on to the position of understanding that, all right, even if it was survival, you'd no longer need to do that sort of survival here. But it's, it, it's bringing people along, so to speak, and bringing them along, it's, you almost have to be sympathetic to... Well, and, and patient as well, and being patient, of course, yes. requires time, and yet, and yet the, the regulations that one's trying to implement are not very good at dealing with long periods of time yeah you don't have a lot of time to be patient because you want to do things according to the time frame the period of the, the the assessment or the period of time you're working with them well and also the social worker is exposed if, if to to you know accusations of not acting quickly enough or being negligent uh, yes. having received certain information so the system itself doesn't allow you to take that time yeah 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 absolutely <laughs> Yeah, I think you yeah you made you made the point. Yes, yes. I agree, uh, and it's uh, doing the when I started off with the with the research, I rather thought that I'd come up with some light bulb moment with some very new way of doing things. I, I can't say that I did, 
But what I did find was that they, they are complex and there is need for a lot more. And there is a need for a lot more research. It, it, it is, it was surprising to me, I suppose, in many ways, uh, how little there is in terms of trying to understand that bridge. Uh, I'm trying to understand that uh, the topic and bridge the gaps that they're in. Uh, but yeah, there is a whole need. But before we even get to the policy bit, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done around the empirical evidence to then inform the policies in a way that will benefit. Well, we are very thankful for you and your sterling work to cast light <laughs> on this interesting area and to provoke, well, researchers to do more research and to fund more research to funders and for all the practitioners out there to think more critically reflective on this brilliantly interesting area. Uh, we would like to thank you so much, Davis, Kima, for your brilliant um, oh. podcast today. And thanks so much to Ruth and Shamila for thank making you. it work so well. And yeah. we will see you all next time on How Social Work. This podcast is produced by Yohai Hakak and edited by Vimal Dalal. To find out more about Brunel University Social Work Programme, please check our web pages at brunel.ac.uk forward slash social dash work or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. To learn more about Ginger Giraffe, visit our website, www.gingergiraffe.coop. Thanks very much and good evening.